Dear Heavenly Father, I, I am amazed as always with the utmost care You bring to the planning and to the direction You give to our lives and to our, our various efforts. Father, even just in the simple detail of how in this modest room we would always have just enough to accommodate those You send us. And uh, Father, it is a sign in itself of how You have chosen this night for those who have attended and You have orchestrated events to bring us here made sure that all that would be necessary would happen so that we would be here on time. And just all those details, Father, let us, let us dwell in this moment on what it means that You work so carefully to bring us to a study of Your Word in this way. What does that mean, Father, for our own obligations as we now set before Your Word and prepare to study it? How much work, Father, and how much care should we bring to a moment that you have so clearly brought together for our own good. I pray, Father, we would have that earnest desire to not just understand what's in your word, Father, but to apply it, to make it our own, to listen to the Holy Spirit as you teach us each individually and correct us on those things we need to change and encourage us in those areas where we need to step out. Father, all that the work, all the work that you intend to do through your word, I pray we would be receptive to it. And then, Father, of course, as we study, I pray as well that what we learn here tonight as we go into Your Word would be strictly according to Your will. That uh, I have planned, Father, to teach. I have a, a lesson in front of me. I've prepared and thought it through and I've, I've written it out. But, Father, it makes no difference. Your teacher is the Holy Spirit. And I would ask, Father, that no matter what I have prepared, the teaching tonight would go according to what You have prepared and what You have placed on this page for us to know. And, then, Father, as we learn it, we will give you the rightful glory that is yours. We praise you and we thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke. We're in chapter 22, as I said. And we are going to pick up at about verse 28, which is where we left off, I believe. We're still in the midst of this Passover evening, Wednesday night, the week of Christ's death. And we had covered last week, you may remember, the details of the Lord's Supper. We looked at how... The Passover meal, which was the event taking place in this upper room, had transitioned from what was the traditional and the prescribed pattern of behavior and of, of routine for a Passover meal. It had transitioned into this new entity that Christ had established that night, what we now call communion, the Lord's Supper. Something entirely new, built upon the Passover, but yet not the Passover. Intended to extend the meaning of the Passover and yet replace the meaning of the Passover. A... Uh, fulfillment of what the Passover meant, and yet a looking forward to its ultimate fulfillment in the kingdom. All these details we covered last week. And as always, as a shameless plug, if you have any interest in hearing what you may have missed, it's always available for free out on the website. Go, go uh, download it if you can. But the focus of Luke's narrative tonight moves beyond the meal. We covered the meal last night, and we covered it in its entirety. Now Luke moves into capturing some of the conversation that took place in that night after the meal itself between Jesus and the disciples. Luke, in this short segment of his chapter here, covers basically three topics, three things of comment that take place in the meal. But we also know from John's Gospel that there was a great deal more discussed than what Luke captures. Remember, we said there were four chapters in the Gospel of Luke dedicated just to the conversation around this meal. And Luke essentially uses a half dozen or so verses to cover that, or a dozen or so verses to cover that same material. So he is selective in his 
description of the discussion, he focuses on three particular topics. Those topics are, number one, the roles that these disciples will play in the coming kingdom that they all assume is right around the corner. Secondly, he's going to look a little into the coming betrayal that is going to take place in the night ahead. Not just the betrayal that Peter does, of course, but the betrayal that all the disciples do. And then finally, he's going to address the responsibility that these men have to be prepared for the scattering that must take place after Jesus' death. The scattering that ultimately leads to them becoming ambassadors for Christ. So let's look at these three topics as we go into the text tonight, starting in verse 28. Jesus says, You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. These eleven men, and if you remember, we're not looking at twelve any longer. Earlier in this same night, Judas had been excused as the betrayer he had left by this point in the evening to go betray Christ. So at this point, the words that are being spoken are being spoken by Christ to eleven men. And these were the ones, he says, who above all others, above all other disciples at the time, would stand by Jesus in his trials. And this is somewhat of an ironic statement, because if you know what's coming here in the verses that follow shortly, uh, we're going to see Jesus make reference to the fact that all of these disciples are going to betray him. And yet he starts by saying, you are the ones who stood by me in my trials. His statement stands here unqualified. What I mean by that is he's not saying, you stood by me in my trials, oh yeah, except for this little moment. He's saying, you stood by me in my trials. I believe he says it that way, not only because of his ability to look back at this point in time and see all that they had done in following him through the years of ministry that have already come, but I believe he's saying this because he's looking forward as well. He knows very well how these men will stand by him in trials to come, ultimately leading in the martyr's death that most of these men experienced. So he is looking at them saying, you are going to have as your reward something that you have earned on the basis of how you've stood by me in trials, both past and future. God knew, of course, what they were going to do. God knew how they were going to be called to spread the gospel, and he knew the persecution they would receive for it. So it's only natural that when he makes this promise here and now, he does so in light of all that will happen to these men, not just the past but the future. I really like the placement of his comments here in this discourse, the way Luke chooses to place this comment at this moment. Because if you remember from last week, we had just looked at verses immediately prior to this one where we had seen uh, a bad moment, basically, for the disciples. Not, not one of their better moments. They had been absorbed in their own pride and their own selfishness, if you remember, their, their self-centered little argument about who was the greatest among them. And that had led to Jesus issuing really a rebuke, a fairly stern rebuke to these men, stepping in to teach them on the servant nature of leadership in the church, not the lording over nature of leadership that typified the Gentile world. So he's had to rebuke them, he's had to discipline them a little bit. And I have to wonder if after that moment of, of rebuke, was it perhaps the case that these disciples were hanging their heads a little bit? They had just a moment of regret? I certainly hope so, because that was the point of the rebuke. They had a moment of recognition that, you know, we really didn't handle that very well, did we? That was really not the right thing to say. And Jesus seeing this, realizing that they feel like they've let him down maybe a little bit, he shows this compassionate side of himself again. 
He turns to these men, he reminds them of an earlier promise, an earlier promise that he had made to them. In Matthew's Gospel, we hear of this earlier promise. We as well hear about it in Luke, but I'll start with the Matthew reference. There's an earlier point in Jesus' ministry where he had promised the disciples this, out of Matthew 19, verse 27. He had said this, Peter said to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also will sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake, will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. So the exchange I just read out of Matthew is actually similar to one that we studied in here in chapter 18 of Luke. What's different is simply that when Luke recorded it in 18, he didn't include as much as Matthew does in his account. And what we're seeing happen now in, verse, in the verses we read out of chapter 22 is Jesus restating or reminding them of this earlier promise. And I think he's doing this, I think he's choosing to do it here and now as a moment of encouragement for these men, having just called them on the carpet for their selfishness and, and for their self-centeredness. He now turns around after that petty argument and he says, you know, you do have a place in my kingdom. And you do have a place of honor in my kingdom, a place of responsibility. And it is an amazing right and privilege that he promises them here uh, to these men. This is what he says to these men. He says... That these 11 men, and remember we're talking ultimately about 12 apostles, and we know that the 12th becomes Paul. Paul calls himself an apostle. That term is a very unique term to Scripture. It's a term of authority that is not one we can appropriate for ourselves. It did not, it did not continue past the original 12, because it is only available to men that Christ himself grants it to. So by definition, it can only be available to those to whom he has appeared. And beyond the eleven, the only other man we know in Scripture to whom he appeared personally and granted this title was Paul. So the twelve apostles of the New Testament include Paul and the eleven who were left after Judas. To those men, he says, you will reign over Israel during the coming kingdom. When Jesus uses the word judge here, as it's represented in our English text, he's using it in this, the, the underlying Greek word here is being used in the same sense as the word judges in the book of Judges. In other words, men who, are, who would rule in authority over other men, or as in the case of the book of Judges, sometimes it was even women, who ruled in authority, but did so under a theocracy, did so under the headship of God ruling his people directly. So a judge was not a king, but a judge had authority to make rules, to make determinations over the affairs of men, but under the headship and direction of God, who himself acted then as king. That's what we mean by a theocracy. It's a nation ruled by the kingship of, a, of God himself. So in the time of the judges, that's the leadership style, or if you will, the government style that existed in the nation of, uh, of Israel. And here again we hear of that time to come, when Christ, ruling on earth physically for a thousand years as king, nevertheless will extend his authority through men who have the uh, right to rule, or in this case, judge, underneath Christ's authority. So, essentially, these men will share in the theocracy that God sets up in his kingdom. They will judge individually over the twelve tribes. I want you to think about what that means, because I think it's easy to say it, maybe not so easy to imagine it. What we're talking about here is these twelve men coming back 
resurrected as you and I will be in that same day, and they will have the leadership over an entire tribe of Israel. We're talking about you know, potentially millions of people. Who's to say how large those groups will be? But they will be made up of the saints of the Old Testament, each from, the, from their respective tribe of the nation of Israel. And they will be like the CEO or, or the prime minister of that individual tribe ruling within Jesus' government on earth. What a remarkable role. What, a, what an amazing responsibility they will have. And it will last for a thousand years. It will last for the, for the period of time that this kingdom is set up. They're going to make judgments. They're going to make various decisions along the way. They're going to organize perhaps the economy or societal rules that, that uh, guide life in that day. All under the authority and the direction of Christ, to be sure. But if it is not to have some independent judgment role, if it is not the case that these men have some authority of their own, then the role is meaningless. It can't merely be that they sit there and say, Jesus said this, do this. Jesus said this, do this. It must be that they are, in some sense, independent, under His authority, ruling in perfect harmony with His will, and yet still able to do things within some sphere of control, some sphere of influence that is theirs. Otherwise, what does ruling mean? What does judging really mean? So it's a real role. In other words, I don't want it to be seen as a puppet. These men have real authority, real responsibility, a real job, if you will. Ruling with Christ. And I believe the expectations that we should take for what those leadership positions will be like will be the same ones that Jesus just expressed in the earlier verses we read last week. They will be servant leaders. They will have real authority, real power under the authority of Christ, but that authority nonetheless will be in the form of a servant leader. I do not believe that the model of leadership that Jesus just preached to them on is somehow a model of leadership that's only good for a time. I think it's a principle that lasts for eternity. Because Christ said, as I served you, you should do the same within the church. The point being that if the form of leadership Jesus shows us is His style, then it's an eternal godly style. It is not a style only for a certain period of time. So I would expect that same style to be the rule for those who rule under His authority in the Messianic Kingdom. Do you want to know something equally amazing? We sit here and we talk about these men and what they will do and their roles But I want you to listen to some verses from Scripture, beginning with Revelation chapter 2, verse 26. This is taken out of the letter, one of the letters to the seven churches, specifically the church of Thyatira. Listen to this. Jesus makes this promise. He says, He who overcomes and who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. Going a little further in that same book, in chapter 20, verse 4 of Revelation, we hear of the moment as Christ returns to the earth with the saints coming down with Him. That means you and I returning. Here's what we hear. John says this, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or His image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And then finally, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. He's talking to a church that was sadly mistaken in so many of their practices, the Corinthian church, and in particular, he was upset that they were taking each other, Christians, taking each other to court to sue each other over disputes. And so he calls them out for that, saying it's a wrong practice, And he says it this way. 
He says, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Well, how much more than matters of this life? His argument to them for why they should not go to court with disputes about one another, but should rather leave it to the church, leave it to the, the body of believers to adjudicate on matters of dispute between believers. His reason for saying that we should do that is because in the eternal realm, in the next age, we will all, the saints, he says, will all have a role in ruling over the nations in that time to come. He says, and you will judge angels, he says. If God considers His saints worthy of that degree of authority in the coming age, Paul says, then you are certainly worthy of the task of judging one another in this age, and yet you turn to the unrighteous and you ask them to judge among you. That's what he's castigating the church about in that letter. But what I'm using it for in our discussion tonight, of course, is to make one emphasis, to emphasize one point, the same point that was made in those verses out of Revelation, which is this. Not only will the apostles judge and in their case, judge the twelve tribes of, of Israel, you and I are going to have a very similar role in that thousand-year reign. While each of the apostles has their hands full judging those twelve tribes, we're going to be busy judging the Gentile world. The Gentile world. As Jesus puts it in his letter to the church at Thyatira, we will judge the nations, which he actually quotes out of Psalm 2 when he says that. The word nations here in the Greek literally is Gentiles. Gentiles. We will be in a position over the Gentile nations of the world. For there will be Gentile nations in that time. Now, there is a tremendous amount of background teaching that would have to come in about this point to explain who will be there and why and where they come from. It's clear enough to all of us already that we are there because we are the saints that, re that come back with Christ. But it is also true, Scripture tells us this, that there are, in that time, men and women who come into the kingdom not yet having died and therefore still living in the same body you and I have today. Not the glorified body that we will arrive in, but rather they will have their natural bodies still and they will come into the kingdom in that way, which means they still can marry and have children and reproduce and repopulate the world. All of that is yet to happen in that thousand-year reign. Now, I can't take the time in this study to really go through that because it would take the rest of the night. I bring it up now only because I want you to understand that the promises that are being made here are absolutely literal. With so many saints available to come in, you and I and all that have preceded us in the church and those yet to come ahead of us, as well as, if you noticed in chapter 20 of Revelation, the saints of tribulation, those who were beheaded for their testimony, those who did not take the mark of the beast, those saints as well are being considered in this group. All of these saints now have come in with this same promise to help rule over the Gentile nations that will exist in that day. Well, with so many saints coming to assume positions of authority, it's clear enough that our individual roles in that government will extend from high levels all the way down to mid-management, all the way down to low management. I mean, there's so many people, there's obviously going to be a lot of places to fill with all those people. So it's equally clear that there's going to be some rank and structure. Unlike the disciples who each get a tribe on their own, we are not going to be set up over tribes. We'll be set up over nations of people. However that is constituted, we don't know. And we'll be aligned in some kind of structure through that government. 
within the Jewish structure, they likewise should probably expect to see not just one man on top as the apostle, but also a structure underneath them. I mean, this is true in the time of Moses. If you remember when Moses was told by God to appoint lieutenants for the purpose of helping manage the affairs of the nation of Israel in the desert, if you know the story of Exodus. It's a similar concept going on in the New Kingdom, in the New Age. So we should expect that the apostles will have their own support structure. But in their case, it will be made up out of Jewish believers, the Old Testament saints, who will likewise be placed in some position of authority underneath them to judge the tribes. But here's something even more fascinating that I'm actually struck by the fact that very few Christians know this. King David will come back and rule as Prince David. That's a promise of the Old Testament. Ezekiel 34, verse 21. Listen to these verses. Because you push with side and with shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns until you have scattered them abroad, therefore I will deliver my flock, this is God speaking, I will deliver my flock and they will no longer be a prey and I will judge between one sheep and another. And then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd and I the Lord will be their God and my servant David will be prince among them. I the Lord have spoken. Now remember, this is being written about 40, or about 400 years rather, 400 years after David had died by the prophet Ezekiel. So we're not talking here about a promise that somehow looked forward to David's coming as the king of, of Israel after Saul in the time of 2 Samuel. No, that, that's already occurred. This is a promise God is giving 400 years later, saying that my shepherd David, or my, my son David will be their shepherd and he will come and he will teach them and I will be the Lord. If you're going to be resurrected, well, certainly so is David going to be resurrected. And if David's going to be there again, he's going to receive the promises he was given when he ruled the first time, meaning this is an eternal throne. You will sit on this throne. Now, not to the point where he rules over Christ, certainly. That's not necessary. Christ has the ultimate authority. But he has a permanent role in ruling over Israel. And in that role, he will return. So he will be prince, as the book calls it. And in that time you can begin to see a government structure now forming where David sits as prince over that nation, the twelve apostles ruling under his authority, one over each tribe, Jesus at the very top of this uh, structure of authority. And then on a similar level, sitting side by side, you have the Gentile nations, all ruled by their respective leaders in Gentile form, and the government underneath each of those leaders progressing down the ranks until you fill out all the authority positions that Christ needs filled. That's the government structure that's going to exist. So who are going to fill those chief positions on the Gentile side? Thought about that? I wonder who's going to be at the top of the ladder. You think maybe the early church martyrs like Stephen? Maybe? Or maybe the faithful, nameless many who endured Roman persecution in the Colosseums? Or um, maybe Luther? Maybe Calvin? Maybe the other great reformists of their day? Maybe the pilgrims or the early missionaries of the last couple of centuries who pioneered the faith into foreign lands. Maybe the great evangelists of the 18th and 19th century. Maybe Billy Graham. But remember Jesus' words in those verses I read just a few minutes ago out of Matthew where he promises that they will rule in that time to come. I stopped short of one verse. The final verse is this, Matthew 19.30. But many who are first will be last and the last first. 
So I often wonder if some of those rulers won't be the nameless, obscure men and women of the ages who have toiled in the faith in some of the most inconspicuous places, doing some of the most unthankful things, but done in the right spirit, done in the right purpose, and in in perfect communion with God's will will be the ones who will ultimately be rewarded with some of these positions. That's an interesting thing to dwell on. Perhaps the better question is, where will you be? Where will I be? And what are we prepared to do even now to ensure our proper place? You know, I think there's a sense in this of, I really don't want to, um, you know, try to make this all about me. You know, I'm uncomfortable as I start to think about this prospect of ruling and reigning and how that's awarded to people essentially on the basis of their uh, willingness to serve Him now. It's the basic principle of Scripture that says, He who is faithful in a little will be faithful in much. So in light of what you do with what I give you now, I'll know whether I can trust you with more later in this kingdom to come. It's, It's in that sense that we begin to get uncomfortable perhaps because we begin to back off and say, well, I really don't want to have my motivation in how I serve God, affected by this concept of where He's going to reward me. I don't want to have it based on reward. And yet, we're perfectly comfortable with that kind of thinking when it comes to our jobs, or in how we reward our children, or in almost every other aspect of our life. We don't balk at the fact that people who work hard at work get paid more, nor do we let that stand in our way for working hard to get what we want, right? We turn to our kids and we tell them, if you want something, you've got to work for it. We make that a principle of life and then we turn to the Scriptures where that very same principle is applied and we say, oh, but I don't want to really have any part to play in that. We're not talking about earning your salvation. We're talking about the fruit of your labor having been saved in obedience to God's call in your life. God says it's a simple equation. Those who are faithful with little, I trust to be faithful with much. I'm waiting to see what you've done with what I've given you here. And the giving in this sense means giving in terms of your gifting, in your terms of your opportunity, in terms of the privilege of knowing His Word and being called to do something with it. You know, there's many people in the world who don't know His Word, who've never been called into a Bible study such that they could understand these things, who've never had the privilege of living in a culture where you're free to live according to your faith. Those are privileges. Those are gifts. What are we doing with them? Have a gift to teach? Are you using it? You have a gift for prayer? Are you using it? You have a gift of service or of mercy or of encouragement. How are you putting it to use for the benefit of the body? It's a fair question. And if the answer is, I don't really know if I'm using it, then let me tell you what the answer is. You're not using it. (laughs) Because the use of it takes effort. It takes commitment and it takes sacrifice. And in doing so, God receives the glory for what you achieve in that effort. But He is likewise willing to reward us for our willingness to give our best to Him now. I'd hate to spend a thousand years wondering about what I should have done with the 40 I lived on earth. Now let's go back into Luke and see where he goes next. The second conversation of the night. Luke 22, 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow tonight until you have denied me three times, denied three times that you know me. So that's the second piece of the conversation for the night. Jesus, having just told them about this future promise, hopefully as an attempt to sort of encourage them a little, to offset their disappointment for having been chastised the moment earlier, he turns to Peter and he presents his challenge. But I think the rendering of the text here isn't quite right. And I think I'm on safe ground in, in saying this. The pronoun at the end of verse 31, the word you, 
where he says, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you. That pronoun in the Greek is actually plural. It's a plural word. In Texas, we know exactly what the plural of you is, don't we? You all, right? So, in truth, Jesus just spoke Texan here. He said, Satan has demanded permission to sift y'all like wheat. And Peter, he starts with behold. The word there where he says behold, that's a word you hear often in Scripture, right? Behold, behold. It's, it's, it's a phrase or a word really that for us today, you know, that's a very antiquated term. It doesn't really convey the meaning as well. Uh, it could very easily be translated today something like look or pay attention. So if you want to use one of those words instead, you could kind of hear him saying, Simon, Simon, pay attention. Or Simon, Simon, look. You know, and, and so you get a sense that as he began to spoke here, or spoke, there you go, I'm speaking Texan now. Uh, as he began to say these words, he felt the need to kind of interrupt something, to get, to grab Peter's attention for a second, to snap him out of something. Well, what would that something have been? What, what was going on that made Jesus need to kind of jump into this conversation and to do it the way he did it? Well, I want you to consider the setting again for a moment. He has just said, you're going to have an opportunity to rule the nations. I believe he said those words in part to offset some of the disappointment they would have felt after his earlier chastisement. But perhaps his efforts here to encourage the disciples with that reminder of their future leadership role, maybe that worked a little too well in the case of Peter. Maybe Peter started to show some signs of that, that pride he was so well known for. Maybe he started to you know, get a little excited. Maybe he high-fived one of the other apostles after he heard, yeah, we're going to be in charge. Maybe he did something like that. You know, I, I get the feeling as Jesus is approaching the cross, you'll see this increasingly, of course, as he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. The pressure of the moment is building for him because he knows what's coming. And he knows this is not a cup he wants to drink from. In fact, we know in a, in a short time here, he's going to appeal to the Father to have that cup removed if it be his will. So he's not really in a mood here probably for a lot of joking, for a lot of frivolity. You know, the apostles don't see what's coming yet, but he does. So perhaps in this moment, as Peter starts to get a little too excited over what he's just said, he feels the need to shock them back into reality, at least just for the moment. And he, he, he comes back to him, Peter, Peter, and he says this phrase of, of the whole, which is like, look, pay attention. And he uses, I find even more interesting, he uses Peter's natural name. Remember, Simon is the name he was born with. Peter was the name Jesus gave him. Peter meaning rock. Cephas, rock in the Greek. It's almost as though Jesus wanted to emphasize to Peter that he's not as invulnerable as he may assume himself to be. He's kind of saying this in my own words. He's saying, you know, Peter, it's going to get a little rough. You know, Satan has, your eye, his, has his eye on you and he's asked permission to come after you to see if you're truly mine. To see if what you claim is truly what you believe. To put you under a little heat. Do you understand that? Simon, not the rock anymore, but Simon. Do you understand what's ahead of you here? So before you get too excited, before you get ahead of yourself and start looking forward to that day of ruling, you've got some trials and you've got some tests between you and that day. And they're not just ordinary trials. They're coming at the hand of Satan himself. There are several important, important lessons we learn from these verses right here about God, about Satan, and about our relationship to them. First of all, it's clear here to my reading that Satan has approached the throne in heaven, which we know he can do. Revelation, as well as the book of Job, show us clearly how Satan is in the presence of God before the throne accusing the saints. 
And in that role, in that opportunity, he has apparently gone before the throne and he has asked God permission to test these saints, to test the apostles specifically. And remember, we said this, this opening word, you, it's a plural. He's asked permission to sift the apostles, not just Peter. So he's come before the throne and he's asked that. Now, would Satan seek God's permission if he didn't have to? If he didn't need God's permission, he wouldn't have asked it. I argue that Satan would never have had the opportunity to put these men through trial had God not permitted it. And that's implicit by the very fact that he had to go before God and demand the opportunity. But the fact that he asks it, and the fact that Jesus says it's going to happen, is proof as well that God allowed it. God is not going to withhold the testing of a saint because it's in the testing that the faith is made sure. So Satan, as the tempter, as the prince of the power of the air, of the ruler of this world for a time, is doing his role, if you will. He's doing his job of testing the metal of those who would claim to be of God. Because if that test has failed, if it's proven to be a false confession, then in fact that individual still belongs to Satan. It also reminds us that you know, Satan can only go as far as God will allow. Satan is only permitted to do what God allows. We know this, of course, from the story of Job most clearly. So we know from what Jesus says in verse 32 that this test is coming. And, of course, we know what happens to these men as they are tested, right? We understand what happens at the moment when they begin to be persecuted, particularly around the time when Jesus is being put to death. They all fall away. All of them fall away. I want you to consider what that means for you and I for just a moment. When we suffer at the hands of the enemy or by extension, but from his demons, God must have first allowed it. Our God is a God who loves us. We know from Scripture that he is one who turns all things to good for those who love him. And we may remember, if you're a student of Scripture, you may remember what the book of Hebrews says on this point in chapter 12. Hebrews 12.5 says this, You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons, My Father, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which you have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Hebrews is teaching that it is a principle of a loving father that he would discipline his children. And in fact, if you have someone who is claiming to be your father, but that person never disciplines you, then you are as if an an illegitimate child. It's a very simple analogy. If if I go into a market, let's say HEB, and I see a child that's misbehaving, that's not my child, strange child, can I discipline that child? Not if I want to stay out of jail. Oh, there's times I've tempted, right? So the nature of a relationship is the ba- that nature of that relationship of son to a father. That relationship is the basis which allows discipline to take place. So if we were truly sons of God, but He never disciplined us, the writer of Hebrews says, "Well, you really wouldn't be sons then, because no good father fails to discipline his son." So he says that these trials that you're going through are evidence that you are in fact one of the sons of God and He is in the course of disciplining you and that is what a good father should do. So we know God is at work 
to do good, and we know that he is inclined to discipline us, and that's the point here. Because it's the same thing James says in his letter, James 1, verse 2, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. He says that these trials, when you endure them, have joy because that's the test of your faith that God has provided. It's a test of your faith. So have joy in that. Why? Because it's a proof that you're His Son. So when we see things come upon us which we can rightly say trace back to the enemy and to His work, two things are immediately true that we need to keep in mind. Number one, God allowed that. God allowed what you just experienced through the enemy. Number two, He's using the enemy for some good purpose, which ultimately comes down to a discipline of you, an opportunity to test your faith, to let you prove your faith, to do something that builds you up in your faith by giving you a test that once you've gone through it, you're better off for it. So you count it as joy, because to do otherwise is to stare God in the face and say you don't agree with what He's doing. To dispute His wisdom over what He's doing. Now, having said all that, Not every bad consequence in our life is directly attributable to Satan's activity, right? You know, when you get caught speeding and you're pulled over by the policeman, you can't go home that night and tell your spouse that you had an encounter with Satan and he was wearing a badge and packing heat, okay? Right? There are natural consequences that we experience in our life that are simply the result of our own sin. Now, God works through those as well to discipline us, but that doesn't mean that that's Satan at work. But Satan is in fact involved in the lives of, the, of people in the world, yours and, I, and mine included. But in our lives it comes down to he's on a leash that God has let just enough out so that Satan will do just, as what, just what God expects and desires so that we might get something good out of it and no more. That leash tightens at the point where he's done what God intended him to do. So Jesus is warning the disciples and Peter here to be ready for that coming test. And it is because by these tests they earn the right to rule. By these tests, they're going to be able to achieve what He's just promised that they will then inherit. We learn another interesting nugget here from Jesus' words to Peter. He says, I have prayed for you, Peter. You know, earlier in verse 31, I said the pronoun was plural. Here it's singular. Here it's singular. So while all of them will experience the test, Jesus has only prayed for Peter. We learn Jesus' reason now for calling Peter out. Why does He start with Simon, Simon? Why doesn't He start with you apostles, Satan, has asked to sift you. He starts with Peter because of how he ends the verse, because it's only Peter that he prayed for. What does it mean that he prayed for Peter? It means he made an appeal. This is what he did specifically. He made an appeal to the Father. What is prayer? Prayer is an appeal to the Father. He made an appeal to the Father, and he did so on the basis that Jesus is our intercessor. That's his role, to intercede. And he does it to achieve a certain good purpose in Peter's life. Before we look at that purpose, I just want to make note in passing of the fact that this is exactly the role Scripture says Jesus has, not just for this moment, but every day since the day of the cross. Romans 8.27 He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He, meaning Christ, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's the role of Christ now. Hebrews 7.25 says essentially the same thing, but it goes like this. Therefore, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. By the way, that's a great verse to memorize and to keep in your hip pocket for discussions with someone who may question whether or not they have eternal security. Because I want you to listen to what the writer of Hebrews just said. He says that Jesus intercedes on behalf 
of the, those who have drawn near to God. And because He lives forever to do that, He is able to save forever those who have made the confession of faith. Meaning that no matter what may happen after our confession of faith, be it genuine, Christ will intercede perpetually for all that comes afterward. Such that He will intercede on behalf of our sin, obviously, for the sake of the forgiveness of our sin. But He also, I believe, intercedes in the same way that we're talking about it here for Peter. Intercedes for our success in light of trials or in light of the enemy's attack. Such that He is able to save us forever, the Scripture says. What does he intercede for on behalf of Peter, as an example? He doesn't intercede to say that Peter would not experience the trial. I want you to notice that. He doesn't say, I prayed for you so that the trial won't happen. He could have, but he didn't do that. He doesn't intercede in such a way that Peter would be forgiven for his denials. That doesn't come up. I think that's because it's a given that he would already be forgiven by the blood of Christ. What does he pray for? He prays that his faith would not fail. His faith would not fail. And what does that mean? Well, is he suggesting that Peter could end up in a place where somehow he would revert to a state of unbelief because of the enemy's trials? No, because Hebrews 7.25 just tells us that that's not possible, among other verses of Scripture for that matter. Because Jesus has the power to save forever those who are brought near to God by faith. The moment you believe, that's the moment you have drawn near to God by faith. From that moment on, he says, you are saved forever. You know, that word has no meaning if it doesn't mean forever. If it means anything less than eternal, then it doesn't mean anything. It's not forever until you do this wrong. Forever unless you change your mind. Forever unless you fail and deny Christ three times. No, forever. And Peter is living proof of that. That his denial, three specific times he said he didn't even know Christ. It was not enough to separate him from the love of God. Because Christ, he said, I prayed for you, Peter. Because as the intercessor who lives forever to serve that role, he is able to save forever those who have drawn near to God. Not by your work, not by your steadfastness, not because you and I are so good, but because Christ has the power to do that. That's what he's telling Peter he's prayed for. Look at the end of the verse. He says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then he gives this. He says, so that you, when once you have turned again... Strengthen your brothers. Now we know why he turned to Peter and not the others. He says, once you've turned back, you're going to be the one through whom you're going to help the other apostles do exactly the same thing. Return, in other words. Be healed. So it's obvious enough that Peter's role as a leader in the church is really being magnified by this moment. Christ says, I'm praying for you, Peter, just so you know, so that you'll turn back. You will, su- you will survive this test. And let me tell you, when I've done that for you, you do it for your brothers. And in doing so, you will secure their return. And as a group now, you will build the church. It's God's plan to work through Peter to restore the other men. What Peter has just heard in the statement Jesus made about turning back, lights a fire under him, right? So he says in verse 33, Lord, with you I'm ready to go to prison and to death, right? He immediately jumps on this phrase that Jesus has just mentioned that, you know, when you turn back, by the way, this is what I want you to do. What Peter heard was, turn back. I'm not turning anywhere. Turn back? What do you mean? I'm not going anywhere. I'll fight to the death for you. You know, he immediately immediately picked up on the implication of that phrase. And he makes that that, that statement of bravado. And that gives Jesus really no choice. You notice how he took it kind of nice? Jesus said it in a very subtle way. He didn't really get into the fact that there were going to be three denials. He didn't pick on Peter. He just kind of skipped over that detail and went straight to the good part. 
when you come back, this is what I need you to do. And Peter forces his hand. Peter, Peter says, I'm never going anywhere. And Jesus said, okay, Peter, have it your way. Before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. Feel better now? That part was mine. But I think that's part of what he's thinking, right? If you need me to go there, I'll go there with you. But, you know, if you're too stubborn to understand what I'm trying to tell you, just know that this will happen. Why does he give him that detail? Well, clearly, so that in the moments those events occur, the fact that his memory looks back and recognizes God's omniscience and his sovereignty in his foreknowledge of the event and his planning for the event would give him a glimmer of hope to understand that he could also trust in the promise that he will be brought back. If I can see the truth of the prophecy of my fall, then I can believe the truth of the prophecy of my restoration. That promise of return is equally sure. Going forward now, in Luke 22, I want to look at the next three verses because this is the last topic for the night of the ones that Luke records. And he said to them, When I sent you out without money belts and bags and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, No, nothing. And he said to them, But now, whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and to buy one. For I tell you, that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. So in this third issue, Jesus makes a reference here back to an experience that we studied, if you were with me, in chapter 9 of Luke. Back at that earlier point in his ministry in chapter 9, Jesus had directed the disciples to go out and proclaim the gospel and to perform miracles. And if you're not familiar with that chapter, I encourage you to go back and read. It's really the first half of chapter 9. Jesus sends out not just these men, but 70 of the disciples. And in going out, he gives them the power to have uh, cast out demons and to uh, uh, hold back the enemy, to cure diseases, and to proclaim the gospel. They go out really as little Christs. By the way, the, the word for little Christ is Christian. They go out as little Christs into the world for a time with this commission to proclaim the gospel along with these miraculous powers. But when he sent them out in that earlier time, he told them that they were not to take any of these items of preparation. In the earlier verses out of chapter 9, he said, don't take any money bags, don't take any clothes with you, don't take a walking stick, don't take any sandals. I mean, really, this is the way you would leave your house only if you were going far enough to go out and pick up the paper and come back in in the morning. But he sends them out into the local towns that way. Now, when they went out in that way, they found success. In that time, they realized not only could they preach the gospel successfully, but even the demons were subjected to him, and it gave them great confidence, and they came back celebrating in that chapter, understanding that God had given them that power. Now he reminds them of how that worked. Jesus says, remember that day? Did you need anything? No, it worked great. We were good. But now he changes the instructions. He's essentially saying, okay, it's time to do that again. But now it's different. Now it's different. You're supposed to make now the preparations that before I told you not to make. They're supposed to have money bags. They're supposed to have coats. They're supposed to have, in this case, even swords with them. Why do you change the instructions? What's going on here? Well, he tells them, quoting from a prophecy taken out of Isaiah 53, verse 12, that Jesus is about to be counted with transgressors. This was a messianic prophecy of what the Messiah would experience. But it means literally he's going to be found to be a criminal. I must fulfill this part of the prophecy. It's not, so, it's not just enough that I've come and fulfilled all the good stuff. I've got to come and fulfill the bad stuff too. Bad stuff meaning the unpleasant stuff. 
And part of what was prophesied for the Messiah was that he would be counted as a criminal in his own day. So he says, I've got to come and I've got to live out that prophecy. And therefore, so would they. You know, if they're associated with him, if they're his friends and his followers, if they're that close to him, then when the world turns on Christ and says to Christ, you are a criminal, then I guarantee you that those men would suffer under the same kind of stigma. They likewise would be seen as criminals. So first thing that he needs to tell them is, the world is changing around you. You're not going to be well received like you were before. Secondly, he says, the circumstances are going to be different. When they went out the first time, Jesus was physically on the earth. The disciples were therefore in a situation where the kingdom was immediately in their presence, by virtue of the king being there. And it was being made available to the nation, to the nation of Israel. There was a legitimate, sincere, honest offer of the kingdom being made in that day when they went out with the gospel. Had the nation of Israel received that call to come and believe in their Messiah, the Messianic kingdom could have been set up in that day. The thousand-year reign of Christ over the nation of Israel, as promised in the Old Testament, would have been fulfilled in their day, rather than waiting for the future day that we all still wait for. But it, was, it depended on the nation receiving their Messiah, no different than it will depend in the future day. And so the times were different. Satan was in control, if you will. Satan was bound by Christ's very presence. Remember, they could subdue the demons because they had Christ's authority to do so. He was there on earth, reigning even then. Reigning to the extent God wanted him to reign. Reigning in that unique way as a servant. Coming as the, the servant that he came as. Not to judge the world, but to save it. Satan couldn't have stopped them. Satan was not the reason why the, why the nation of Israel rejected them. Satan was being held at bay for that time. Therefore, they weren't going to suffer persecution. The world was not going to turn on them because they were under an umbrella of protection, if you will, established by the Messiah himself who was with them at the time. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9 when the Pharisees said, how come your disciples don't fast like our disciples do, like John's disciples do? What does Jesus say in response to that? In chapter 9, verse 15, he said, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Fasting being a sign of, of, of anticipation, of suffering and anticipation for something. The point being that there was a time, a special time during Christ's ministry on earth when all was right, if you will. The disciples were not going to be persecuted. They were under his protection. The enemy could not thwart them. The gospel message was being preached and the opportunity for the kingdom existed. And therefore, they needed nothing. They shouldn't bring anything to that party. They don't need to bring their own food or money or sticks, belts, shoes, whatever. None of those things were necessary because they had the power of God in their very presence. And to have had those things in that moment might have led them to the wrong conclusion about why they were successful. Now they can look back, as he points out here in chapter 22, and they can remember, did we need anything? No, you're right, we didn't. Okay, guys, what's the point? Oh, because you were here providing it, because we had the power of God through us. Now he says the circumstances are different. At the point where Jesus dies on the cross, there is an eternal war that comes to the surface in the form of the enemy and his forces battling the spiritual, in the spiritual realm the saints and the way God works through the Holy Spirit in those saints. There's a spiritual battle. Scripture talks about that now, right? In Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. 
That's the battle that now has ensued following Christ's death on the cross. And in that battle, Christ wants these men to be fully prepared and aware of what they're going to face. Now, he's not expecting these men, by the way, to um, engage in some kind of literal armed conflict. You know, this reference to the sword, for example. This is about a spiritual battle. He's saying, you know, you need your money bag. You need to have your, your coat or you need to sell it and get a sword. But he's basically saying here, you need to be able to put your personal finances, your personal resources, all your ingenuity and capability, you need to put it all into action now for the work of the kingdom. You need to bring everything you have to bear for this, for this task that now is, you now face. Don't hold anything back from God. You're working for Him now. Be prepared for that work. And you only have to look a little further into the chapter to know that he was not expecting these men to literally go out with a sword and start cutting up people to fight for the gospel. How far do you have to look? Only as far as when they come to capture Jesus later in this chapter. And these men, thinking that he's been talking literally, not knowing at this point that he's talking spiritually, they get ready to pull out one of these swords and, they, and Peter you know, takes a stab at the, at the servant of the high priest and cuts off his ear. And what does Christ do? He says, stop. What are you guys doing? And he heals the man's ear. Right? There was no desire on Christ's part that these men would literally take to the sword. It's metaphoric. It's a picture of how they were to be committed and prepared for the battle. But, uh, of course, the disciples don't get it. They, they, in the verses we already read, in, or in the verses we've read up to now, you hear them giving this teaching, giving this preparation speech, and then look what they say in verse 38. They say, Lord, look, here are two swords. <laughs> you need a sword? We've got two. And what does he say to them? He says, it is enough. It is enough. You see Jesus shaking his head here a little bit? Kind of a... Some enterprising apostle or two finds a sword in the corner of the room, pulls it out and says, hey, we got, the, we got it, we're ready. Jesus responds to them by saying, it is enough. This is actually a common phrase used in Scripture. It shows up time and again in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It means this, there's no need to talk anymore. There's no sense in going any further in this conversation. We need to just stop talking right now. And he's saying it in an exasperated way because they're not getting it. And I think it's because he understood they'll get it sooner or later. They didn't need to get it now. They'll figure it out when the time comes. But in this moment, they haven't figured it out. They're ready to grab a sword and cut somebody up. And he's like, it's enough. You don't understand what I'm saying. I need you to be prepared, but I need you to be prepared in the spiritual battle, not in the physical battle. How are we prepared to face the battle? Are we devoted in our priorities of life to doing as Christ or as God demands us to do, as He calls us to do, such that we are earning the rightful place we should have in the kingdom. We are, we are giving Him reason to award us with greater authority in the age to come. And is that our priority? Or is gaining power, privilege, fame, and fortune in this world what we are seeking after? And secondly, are we prepared for the battles that we know will come our way when we engage in the building of the kingdom? Are we devoting everything we have to being prepared for that battle? I have a friend I know who lives in Huntsville, Alabama, who did something interesting a few years ago that I've always thought back upon, and, and it's given me great reason to consider what I do in my own life. He told me at one point that he had t- liquidated his 401k, which at the time was a substantial amount of money, and used it to pay off his home. And I thought, you know, that's not a real wise kind of financial decision because he had to pay penalties on that. You know, he had to pay interest on it, and so he lost a good chunk of it in the process. And all he achieved with it was paying off his mortgage. And I asked him, well, 
did a financial planner tell you to do that? I mean, what, why would you do that? And he says, you know, my wife and I were talking and we felt that if God were to call us in some respect to serve him, to move to another part of the world, to become missionaries, to, uh, to uh, take some of our assets and use them to benefit the church in some way or the body of Christ in some way, to do something radical in that way, you know, I'd probably be inclined to say no if I looked at my mortgage and if I looked at my bills and said, well, I, I can't afford to do that. I can't afford to quit my job, for example. I can't afford to change my budget in that radical way. God, I've got these bills. And he said, but we realized that if we paid off our mortgage and we had no debt, period, no obligations, everything was free, I wouldn't have a savings, I wouldn't have a retirement, but then again, God is my provider, not my retirement plan. Meanwhile, I'd be completely free to respond to anything the Spirit might call us to do. That's a man who's doing two things very well. His eyes are on eternity, and he's prepared to put everything he has into the battle. And I'm not saying you should do that, per se, but I am asking, are you willing to do that, right? Are you willing? And if we aren't willing, then the first test of faith is to develop the willingness. And then trust God to do with it what he calls us to do, what he wishes for us to do. Where is your treasure? There your heart is also. Let's go to prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the teaching. Thank you, Father, for the conviction where it happens. Thank you, Father, for the encouragement where you make it available. And, Father, I pray that for all that we've learned tonight and in the nights past, perhaps even in the nights to come, Father, I pray that our hearts would be inclined to obey the calling of your word and to be useful in the building of your kingdom and to be instruments of glory among men. Thank you for the time, and I pray, Lord, that it would be your will we would return next week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.